Luke's Gospel. This will be time in the gathering where we're going to um, just look at this. And we love our middle name here at Crossroads. Um, Crossroads Bible. Bible is our middle name. And because we believe this to be the very words of God. As we're making our way through Luke's Gospel, I feel like we're coming right to the heart. Right to the heart. Not just of Luke's gospel, I think you could say the heart of the whole Bible, which brings us right into the heart of God, who he is. Next three weeks, um, we're going to be looking at the parable that Jesus teaches, a parable that we call the parable of the prodigal. Um, two weeks ago, I said you could kind of summarize Luke's gospel by those two places where it says the Son of Man came. Uh, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then it also, in another place, says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And the the seeking and saving the lost is, is, is the end. It's the purpose. It's the goal. It's Jesus' whole purpose in coming to the world. And, and the eating and drinking is the way in which he's doing it. He's eating and drinking with sinners. And you say, well, what about the cross? Well, even the cross is, is a meal that Jesus offers um, for us to eat, to appropriate just that saving reality into our lives. So here we are in Luke 15. Um, you're going to notice there's three parables. Each parable has the same structure. First, you have an object that's lost. Then that object, uh, through persistent seeking, is found. And after it's found, there's a celebration. And, and, and what these parables are here for is they're here to teach us about lostness. What it means to be lost. And also, it teaches us what it means to be found. And primarily what they teach us is is God's heart in drawing lost people to himself and in the party and the feasting that this produces in heaven. So Luke 15, I feel a little bit right now like, has anybody ever read the book, The Crime Crime and Punishment? Uh, you have two very different characters throughout this, this book. It's one of my favorite uh, novels. Uh, you have Raskolnikov, who, as an atheist, wants to believe he is above the law, and to prove that he's above the law, just goes out and kills an old woman. But yet he's just laden with guilt and shame. And then there's this other character, this poor peasant girl, who literally has to prostitute herself to keep her, 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 her daughter alive to provide bread for her. And she loves Jesus. And one day they're together and, and he asks her, he says, would you pick up your Bible and read John 11 for me? And it was so precious to her. John 11, she could hardly open it. And she opened it and her hands were shaking and tears coming down her face because of the truths that were contained in that text. And I feel that way about what we're looking at today. This is, this is precious, precious stuff. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 
Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me. Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went, to the, so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pig, unclean, unkosher. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, I'm starving to death. I will set out, I will go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Kill it. Let's party. For this son of mine was dead, but is alive again. He was lost. He is now found. So they began to celebrate. And this is God's word for today. You may be seated. Okay, first, just a quick word about parables. Parables are one of the primary uh, teaching techniques of the rabbis. And, and, and this goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. In fact, we have 2,000 parables on record uh, from the rabbis of this time period. And, and Jesus, being a rabbi, also loves this technique. He loves to teach through parables. Now, I think the way that we often think of parables is we kind of think of these parables as kind of sentimental stories that are told to tug at our emotions. That's not why Jesus or the rabbis tell a parable. These parables are really launched like grenades to blow up misconceptions that people have about God. And so in this case, the misconception that, that Jesus is trying to blow up, it's, it, 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 it's who God is. It's who's in, who's not, who's lost, who's found. And so I don't want us to think of this as a sentimental story. I, I'd rather uh, us see this story as really a grenade that is probably going to feel like that this morning. It, it, it ought to just literally be blowing up paradigms that we have so that we can really see clearly who God is. And in this case, who's lost and who's found. Now the context of this parable too is very important. And look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. In fact, if you have a Bible, um, a Bible like mine, um, is, this is 848. 
And here's the context. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. (laughs) Picture that. But the Pharisees and the rabbis murmured. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's your context. I want us to see the tension Jesus creates. He creates a lot of tension. In in fact, think about how many times in the Gospels people are questioning him. Think about how many times in the Gospels people are frustrated with him. Think about how many times in the Gospels people pick up stones ready to stone him. And I want you to know that these people are not thugs. These are Bible-believing, devoted to God kind of people. Now, what's at the heart of the tension? Well, a lot of it has to do with Jesus' eating habits. It's who he eats with. He eats with sinners. And see, Jesus is dealing with an audience that basically divided the world into two groups of people. You have the unclean and you have the clean. Or or, or for us, you had the bad people and you have the good people. The good people in Jesus' day are the obedient, Bible-believing Jews. They're the people that went to synagogue. They're the people that learned God's word, lived by God's word. They're the ones who pray They're the ones who lift their hands and worship. They're the ones who give their money to the poor. They're the ones who are trying to keep themselves unstained from the world. They're a law-abiding good people. And the Pharisees and the rabbis are at the top of this food chain. The bad people are both Jews and Gentiles who didn't take God seriously, namely, God's word. They're the people that just live their life in a very worldly sort of way. And the people that epitomize this group of people are the tax collectors, who are traitors, and the prostitutes. And verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15 tells us that the people who are swarming around Jesus are the bad people, And the good people are complaining. That's the context. And we need to know that this isn't just something that occurs in Luke 15, but this is something that is going on throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, read the four Gospels this week. And by the way, when I put that challenge before you, you can do that. You can read all four Gospels. Um, and, and, And when you read the Gospels, take note of this. Take note of the people that just love Jesus who come to him, who fall at his feet, who, who eat with him, who, who just love him. Take note of that. Take, take note of the people that reject Jesus. Take note of the people that, that want to pick up stones and stone Jesus and want to kill Jesus. Also, take note of the people that Jesus is drawn to. The people who Jesus accepts. Also, take note of the people who Jesus rejects and chastises, I think it'll shock you. To use the categories of Jesus' day. 
It's not the good people. It's the bad people who are swarming around Jesus. It's not the pastors who are falling at Jesus' feet. It's the pimps and the prostitutes. It's, it's not the Bible belt. It's the marginalized. It's not the spiritual, hand-raising, fast-twice-a-week Pharisee. It's the carnal. It's not the political insiders, the priests and the Levites. It's the political outsiders like the tax collectors and the racial outsiders like the Samaritan woman. And I'll tell you what this produces. Massive amounts of tension for the good guys, the good people. And so Jesus tells this parable to answer his critics, to teach us really about what it means to be lost um, and, and also what it means to be found and who's going to be at the messianic banquet at the end of the age. Because here's the deal, and I'm getting ahead of the game. God doesn't look at the world the way we look at it. He doesn't divide it into good people, bad people. God sees only people who are lost and people who are found. And God, through Christ, came to seek and to save the lost. So let's look at this parable. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now, if you know this story, it, 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 it's very easy to see the lostness of the younger son. That's, I'm going to call him the younger brother. But he has two sons, and I'm going to tell you right now, they're both lost. And the reason we know they're both lost is because the parable doesn't end with where we read today at verse 24, but it goes on to show us the lostness of the older, older son. Because at the end of the day, they're both alienated from the father in their own way, and, and the father has to go out and bring both of them back in because they're both lost. They both need to be found. And so these two sons, these two brothers, really represent the two groups of, in verse 1 and 2. The younger son represents the bad people, the sinners and the tax collector. The older son represents the good people, the Pharisees, the pastors, the Bible-believing, Bible-obeying good people. And what this parable is teaching us is that there are two ways to be lost. And I think we all know that we can be lost as a rebellious, carnal, fornicating, bad person. We know that kind of lostness. But Jesus is here to teach us that we can also be lost as Bible-believing, church-attending, good people. And not only that, and now I'm really getting to the end of the story. Not only are there two ways to be lost as both a bad person or a good person, but in the end, who's found? Who's at the feast? Who's at the party? And who's not? Now, if this is all a little bit fuzzy to you, if this parable is a little bit fuzzy to you, I'll put it to you in propositional form. 
uh, because we as Westerners like propositions, and Jesus gives us propositions. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, all you good spiritual people. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Does that feel like a grenade? Anybody want to walk out right now? It should. This should mess with us. In the end, it's not the good guys. It's the bad guys. Which is why we can't sentimentalize this story. We need to let this story fall on our hearts today like a grenade. Here's the question I'm going to ask you right now. Personally ask yourself this question. Are you lost? Are you found? And how do you know? In fact, God, I just pray you do a supernatural work today. Because, God, we're, we're, the stakes are just so high. God, do what you need to do. Open the eyes of our heart. Let us see what we are, who we are, and who you are and what you've done. Bring us home to you, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Verse 12, verse 12. The younger brother said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. <laughs> this, this shows us one way for a person to be lost, and it's in that little three-letter, Father, give me. Uh, don't, don't think that this brother left the father's house and then became lost. He's, he's lost even before he leaves his father's house. And, and maybe this is a good time to start asking, what does it mean to be lost? Or, or better yet, what does it mean to be found? I think I was four or five when this happened to me. My dad, my brother, and I um, were on vacation, and we were going through this haunted house. And I was scared out of my mind. I was literally clinging to my dad as we were going through this thing. And my older brother looked at me, and I think he said something like, you scaredy cat, why do you have to hang on to dad's hand so tight? And of course, I'm already a competitive little kid that wants to prove my big brother wrong, so I, I let go of my, my dad's hand in that moment, not knowing, though, that the next thing that we were going to enter in this house was a, was a pitch black room. And so this little five-year-old kid, uh, all of a sudden lets go of his dad, we go into this pitch black room, I, I, I just froze, I froze. They just kept going. <laughs> In fact, they got all the way out of the whole house before they realized I wasn't there. <laughs> and this whole time, I am just in pure panic mode, and I'm loud. <laughs> so I'm screaming, and of course, my dad came back to get me. And he had to take me through the rest of the haunted house, and I had him by the hand. That's where we'd be left to be. 
we would be left in this dark world, absent from our Father, except our Father came to seek and to save the lost. And to be found is the most beautiful reality there is in the world. It's what our hearts long for, whether you know it or not. It's what we've been created for. And some of you have been ripped off into thinking that being found is simply being one of the good guys. That being found is going to church and learning how to be spiritual. To be found is to know, for me, it's to know my Father. (laughs) To know Him. To know His intense, passionate love for me. It's to know His hand. It's to know His arms, His embrace. It's to know His kiss. And so don't make being found about being good or being religion. Uh, It's to personally know your Father who art in heaven. It's to know his embrace. It's to know his love. And so when this son says, Father, give me, what you already see in his heart is you see his entitlement, his obsession with himself. Father, give me what is rightfully mine. Give me what I deserve. And see, it's already through this this entitlement, this obsession with himself, that this son is already a long way away from the heart of his father. That Ken Bailey, who I, um, he is the foremost expert on, on this story. One, because he grew up in the Middle East as a missionary kid and then taught there for, for so long, so he understands the Middle Eastern context like no one else. He says, in in a Middle Eastern context, a son would never ask such a question. Because remember, life in that context, everything is ordered and centered on the Beit Av. And the Beit Av is your father and your father's household. That's everything to a person. It's a person's joy, it's their meaning, it's their worth, it's their identity, it's their very life. And to lose it is to lose everything. So a Middle Easterner reads this story, he's like, what's wrong with this dude? Who would ever leave that? And to them, that's the sin. Also, what Kim Bailey tells us is that the inheritance or the blessing that's distributed to the sons, it's, it's simply distributed for the purpose of serving the family and the needs of the family. And it's only distributed after the father is dead. So what Ken Bailey tells us is that any son in this context who would ask this of of the father would literally be slapped violently across the face by his dad. Because what he's saying to his dad is he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Look how this father responds. Look at verse 12. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property. Don't think of property as just wealth or money. Because in the Greek, it's the word 
bios, which is the word for which we get biology. It means life. The father is dividing his very life. He's, he, he's, he's literally being cut in two. In fact, if you had been standing in Jesus' audience that day, you would have heard a loud gasp. They, they have no category for a father who would do such a thing. And now look at verse 13. He takes his father's life, and not long after that, got together all he said, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his father's life and wild living. Just took daddy's life and he just wasted it away in wild living. If you want to know what younger brother lostness looks like, here it is. It's easy to see, isn't it? You see this thousand miles away. Living foolishly, recklessly, partying, sleeping with prostitutes. But what I want us to see this morning is that this kind of lostness is deeper than just having sex with prostitutes, and, and it's deeper than wild living. It's even deeper than um, this narcissistic entitlement that, that, that defines this kid. You have to ask this question. You have to ask, why is he doing this? Why is he asking such a question? And why is he going off and just wastefully um, throwing it all to pot? Because the son is seeking more than wealth. He's seeking more than just some pleasurable uh, living. He's seeking to control his life. Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Get the heck out of my life so I can be free to live however I want. It's a total rejection of his father. Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous French existentialist, was asked why he didn't believe in God. His answer is profound. He says, I don't believe in God because I don't want someone to tell me how to live. That's why people reject God. I don't want to have someone telling me how to live. See, the essence of sin is deeper than just being bad. You have to go deeper. You have to look uh, beneath the wild living, the reckless, the self-indulgence, the narcissism. You you need to look deeper. And the sin beneath our bad, just like in a few weeks from now, I'm going to exhort you to not just look at the good, but to look at the sin that's oftentimes underneath our good. And and in this case, I want us to look at the sin underneath our bad. The sin underneath our bad is that we want God out of our life so we can be our own masters, so we can call the shots. And that's, what younger, that's at the root of younger brother lostness. This is why both, both sons are lost. They both want to be in control. One is doing it through his badness. The other is doing it through his goodness to control God, which we'll look at in a few weeks from now. It's rejecting relationship with God to be in control of our lives, which is where so much of our society is today. 
And if you don't know that there aren't huge consequences for living this way, I think Jesus flushes those things out. Look at verses 13 and 14. Not long after that, the younger son got up together all he had. He set off for a distant country there. He squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. This whole phrase, wild living, uh, essentially means to be out of control. Everything now for him is out of control. This is what happens when we seek to be in controls, control of our lives. We will ultimately lose control. And when we lose control, verse 14, our life starts to crumble. And this guy is going to lose everything. And not only is he going to lose everything, but look at verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. (laughs) He is experiencing profound emptiness. Longing to fill it. These are the consequences of being our own masters and being in control of our lives and rejecting the Father to do so. And so this guy is lost. And he's lost not just in being a bad person, but he's lost because he has lost home. And then being found is not just this bad person then becoming a good person, but it's, it's for him to come home. Because again, whether you and I know it or not, we've been made for home and there's only one true home and home is not a place. Home is a relationship. Home is the place where I am in relationship with my Father in heaven. Henry Nouwen said it so well. He says, home is at the center of my being where I hear God say, I am your Father and you are my Son with whom I am well pleased. That's home. Augustine said it his way. He said, God has made us for for himself and our souls. They're restless until they rest in him, until we make our home in him. And so many of us spend our whole lives searching for home. The prodigal here, he, he left home trying to find home. And I think we too, like the prodigal, we desperately search for that place where we're loved and where we're cherished and where we're accepted. A a, a place that home is supposed to be where we we feel like we belong. And so we, we leave our homes and we go to all sorts of different places and experiences and, and, and we search places that will affirm us and accept us and stimulate us and adore us and, and, and tell us that we're significant, that we matter, that our lives matter. And they never deliver. Because just like famine is the end result here, when we choose home apart from our Father who art in heaven, it will always bring us to a place of famine. In verse 17, it says, Now he came to his senses. Some of you uh, have a better translation of that. I don't want to say this is a bad tra- translation, but it is. <laughs> he came come to his senses. 
Because some people then start to read this as, oh, he's starting to repent. Are you kidding? The literal reading of it is, he came to himself. Because when we live for ourselves, where we make self the Lord and self the master, we will come to the end of ourself. We will come to a place that we call rock bottom. And it took this son to come to a place where he's literally starving to death. How long did it take him to finally come to the end of himself? But this is the first time now where he knows what he left. He knows what he lost. He lost home. He lost his father. And what I love about this parable, it's all about returning. Do you know the Hebrew word for repent? Does anybody know the actual word itself in Hebrew? Shuv. Shuvah. Teshuvah. Shuv simply means to return. Teshuvah simply means to return home. That's why when you see Jesus, he is constantly filling his sermons and ending his sermons with, Shuv, return, repent, leave living life for you and where you're in control and give up control and return home. Have you repented? Only sinners repent. Only sinners. Saints, Pharisees, I'm a good person. I don't need to repent. Now what the prodigal does here is he concocts a plan to get back. So verse 18, you, you, you see what his plan consists of. Don't think of this plan as, as repentance because his plan is still centered upon himself. It's what he's going to do. It's centered on his efforts. It's still all about him. In fact, he takes a clause, and the Pharisees hearing this would have known this clause because they know the book. He takes a word-for-word -word statement of what Pharaoh says to Moses when the plagues are hitting himself. Moses, or Pharaoh says to Moses, I've sinned against God and against you. And why is Moses saying that? It's not that he's repenting. He's just like, stop these plagues. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, he says there's two ways to be sorrowful. There's, there's two ways to repent. He says one is selfish. It's, it's when I'm sorry for my sake. I'm sorry because of the hurt that it's caused me. I, I, I'm sorry then to the extent that being sorry is going to serve me. That's worldly sorrow. That only leads to more selfishness. The other sorrow is because I'm cut to my heart. Oh, God, I've hurt you. I've hurt the people around me. I can't believe it. I did this. I'm sorry. I, I returned to you. 
And this younger son, he's, he, he, he isn't there yet. He's, he's still in this place of selfishness where it's all about me. It's all about my plans to make this right. It's all about my uh, remedy to, to remedy this thing. He's like all of us. He doesn't have the capacity to truly repent to drop his self-centered plan until he sees his dad off in the distance running to him. I want to add something to this. This is again from Bailey. Bailey says in that culture when someone squanders all their wealth, not just waste everything, but they wasted on Gentiles. And we know the, the prodigal did this because he's, he's in pig land. He's in unkosher land. When anyone from the community would do this, they would gather the whole community together. They would then take that person who squandered everything away to the Gentiles. They'd place that person right in the center of the whole community. They'd take a pot, a big jar filled with the best food from the land. They would then smash it to say, this is what you've done to us. You've smashed everything good. And this is what you did to your father. You smashed his heart. And therefore, and the ceremony is called the kazaza ceremony because it means to be cut off. You are cut off. See you later, alligator. You're done. <laughs> the son fears this, but he has to go home because he's starving to death. He gets to the outskirts of his, of his village. And he sees his dad. Off in the distance. Running towards him. No distinguished patriarch in that culture ever ran. Children ran. Women ran. But it was undignified for a head of a household to lift up his robe, bare his legs. That was just shaming. And run. The only time an older man girded up his loins was to go out and make war. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary father. If you want to know God, God isn't just a father. He's this kind of father. He's a father who never stopped loving his son, no matter how far he was away from home. Which means... No matter what distant country you've been, no matter how long you've been away, no matter what you have done, no matter how much of a mess you've made of your life, this is our God. Jesus said, this is God. This is your Father in heaven. Has God opened the eyes of your heart to see him? 
to see how he runs to you. And when he gets to you, he's not coming to make war. He's coming to embrace you, to hold you, to kiss you, to come home. See, this is the part of the story where the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, they begin to weep because they say, this is me. This is me. This is... He loves me. And see, what causes our hearts to repent, don't think this prodigal is the hero of the story. There's only one hero in the story. Like, there's only one hero in the Bible. It's God. God is the hero. The son repents, drops his plans, not because he's so good. He sees a father who is so good. David says this in Psalm 23 when he says, he restores my soul. That word shuv is tucked in there. It says literally, this is how that reads, he causes my heart to turn. David knew the love of the Father. He knew God is a good shepherd. He knew that he was just like a lost sheep and he could never return to the shepherd or a lost coin. A coin is never going to go back to its owner unless the owner or the shepherd go out and find it. And Jesus says this is God. He's not just an owner. He's not just a shepherd. He is a father and he's going to go out and he's going to find us. you know him? you know how much he loves you? Does your heart hear him say, you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I delight? And the reason why we can come home because there was a kazaza ceremony that was performed 2,000 years ago when God's son, our true older brother, like that jar, he was smashed for us. He was crushed. He took it. He was cut off. He was sent out of the community. So we get to come home. And Jesus said, I came to the world to show you the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. And he said, I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So today, I'm going to end. Will, you can come up. I'm going to offer communion for only. Sometimes we do all church communion. Today, I just want to do it for people who are prodigals are so far away from home. And for the first time, you see your father and you hear him saying, son, daughter, come home. Because that meal back there where I'll be that I'll serve you is a meal for sinners. Jesus eats with sinners. God, thank you. And some of us this morning, too, God, are, are not only thinking about our own lives and where we are, but other people that we know 
family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Maybe the next few minutes, the rest of our gathering today is just spent praying for those people as we worship. And God, for those this morning who've never known home, God, may you cause their hearts to repent. May they see the love of the Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.